Welcome to episode 266 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So we are yet again interrupting our regularly scheduled program to come at everybody with an update from last week's episode, actually. And if you haven't listened to that episode, you ought to go back and take a listen. And this week, we're kind of bringing an update around EFS Advocates, some interaction that resulted as a result of last week's episode, and then all kinds of adventures in between. So that's the plan for what you're about to listen to. Yeah. So buckle up, everyone, because this is going to be another mostly Tony episode. We <laughs> promise this is not the new norm. Monologuing is not my new uh, my new jam. But, um, you know, I mentioned in the sort of welcome from future Tony on last week's episode that uh, Owen, uh, Dr. Strahan, had written back to me and declined the invitation. But while all of that invitation declining was happening we actually also started interacting on Twitter a little bit as well. And so on uh, November 15th, Dr. Strahan posted what was basically like, he he said basically it was a bluff. So he he posted a quote from J.I. Packer um, that we'll talk about the specifics of the quote because it's, it's interesting uh, that he selected that quote and where that quote falls in the rest of uh, Packer's corpus. But he posted a quote from J.R. Packer that basically said, uh, do you believe this person or this is functional heresy? Uh, the actual, um, let me just pull up the actual picture here. He does this weird thing and I'm not sure why, but he does this weird thing where instead of actually like quote tweeting somebody, he takes screenshots, which is annoying. Uh, it makes it hard to like track down, but he says, uh, quote, time to see if the bite matches the bark. Based on your claim here, Jeff, the person he was interacting with, is J.I. Packer an Aryan? Is he guilty of, quote, of, quote, functional heresy, end quote, within the quote, because if eternal submission for functional subordination is heresy, then Packer is the Aryan of Aryans. And then he quotes, he puts a picture of what Packer wrote and says such beautiful words from, jo- from uh, J.I.P., and I wrote, yes, Owen, he is. Packer is not the standard. The Bible is the standard. For someone banging that drum as loud as you have been, the drum being that the Bible is the standard, we should always go back to the Bible, which, of course, we agree with. I said, for someone banging that drum as loud as you have been, your appeal to him as a sort of gotcha is surprising. And so he then posted, uh, he wrote, if you're tracking with the sad ERAS is heresy deal. Note the tweet below is an affirmation by an anti-ERS voice, Tony Arsenal, that J.I. Packer is guilty of functional heresy. Uh, And he says three thoughts. This matter is way overheated. Two, this is slander. And three, heretics go to hell. Now, when he first posted this, he said, I was saying that heretics go to hell. And so I reached out to him with all sorts of information saying, this is not accurate of my view. I expect you to change it because you know that it's not accurate of my view because I'm giving you the information right now. And to his credit, he went in and he, he made some updates. So he added to that, he modified the post. So it no longer said, I said that uh, Packer was in hell or that he was a heretic, 
but I said Arsenal, or he said Arsenal disavows the idea that Packer is in hell. Jeff Holsclaw did as well. So we are clear. Heretics go to hell. You can't deny that the son is Christ and know the father. If Packer is guilty of functional heresy for ERAS in any biblical system, he is hellbound. So what I want to do is I, I want to talk, some of this is going to be a rehash because we we did an entire episode on this, but it's it's pertinent in this situation because I think this demonstrates some of the shallowness of thinking and the inability to take take arguments to their logical conclusions that is really, really common for most of these uh, EFS, ERAS guys. They don't, they don't recognize that if A equals B and B equals C, therefore A equals C. They don't, they don't get that last part. And so they make all these sorts of conclusions that don't actually work out and they don't, they don't take into account the reality of their own positions and their own thinking. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute here. And then what I want to do once we've talked about that a little bit, and that's going to be short, shorter, is I want to talk a little bit about how Owen Strahan uses sources and how the EFS, ERAS, ESS groups, their use of sources, particularly historical sources, is very strange and it's really kind of, it's kind of hacked together. It's not, you know, it's, it's interesting because Owen, I think is trained in historical studies. He's, he's done a lot of work on Jonathan Edwards. So I would expect better from someone whose primary training or even secondary training is in the area of history. But what you see with a lot of these uses of historical sources is that they are ignorant of, they they appear to be ignorant of the surrounding context and what the surrounding context says and informs us of in relation to what the quote that they're using means. And I say ignorant because it's actually more charitable to say that Owen doesn't understand what the surrounding context means than it is to say that Owen knows that the surrounding context in some of these quotes either disproves his his use of them or disproves that the person he's quoting cleanly fits into his camp. Um, he, he knows that and he's intentionally misrepresenting it. It's actually more charitable to think he just doesn't understand. And I want to I prove a few of those contentions or at least provide some good evidence for those contentions is there's this phenomena that happens online. Um, it's most particularly noticeable when you find a Protestant who is trying to prove that people in like the third century held the same doctrine of sola scriptura that people in the 20th century or the 17th century did. And what, what you see is there's these like websites that are out of context quotes from early church fathers. Athanasius said this, Augustine said this, Hilary of Portier said this, blah, blah, blah. And what happens is it becomes this like circularly referencing thing where there's a quote and then some other site pulls that quote without going back and getting the original context. So now Google has two websites that have this quote with the same kind of subject heading. And you can tell that this is happening because of the way the quotes are formatted often. So I want to show that some of the information that Owen is putting forward, I think he actually genuinely has either has never read the source quote in context, or in the very least, when he pulled these quotes together, he was not looking at the original context when he did it. Um, And we'll we'll get there. So the first thing I want to talk about is this concept of heresy. And so this this is a point of contention for me, because one of the things that's frustrating is... 
when we say, and Josh Summers over on, um, or Josh Summer over on Baptist Broadcast has been doing some good commentary on this. When we say that such and such a teaching, Eras, you know, Arianism, whatever, when we say that Molinism is, is heretical, when I say that William Lane Craig teaches a heretical Christology and, and everything that comes after that, what we're saying is that the, the, the words that are being presented and the theology that's being articulated is substantively identical or substantively similar enough to a known heresy that the church has made a formal statement on that we can consider that teaching to be likewise heretical. Now, there's something that happens in the history of the church that I think most people don't realize is that there is a tendency or a, a preference in the history of doctrine to rule teachings to be heretical, but not necessarily make specific comment about specific teachers. So, for example, in the original Creed of Nicaea, which came out of the, Nicaean, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325, it never names Arius. It never uses the word Arius. It never uses the word Arian. Instead, at the end of the at the end of the creed, it says something along the lines of, "And those who say there was a time when the sun was not, we anathematize." So they identify a category of people, and then that that proclamation or that decision by the church is then used as precedent in later church ecclesiastical actions to identify specific persons as heretics. So in the first council of Nicaea, it's a little bit different, but there was the statement that people who hold this view are, are anathema. And then there were other ecclesiastical court functions that identified Arius specifically. And then some of his, his supporters as holding that view substantively and then excluding them. We see the same thing in the Synod of Dort, right? There's these canons of Dort that come forward that identify what the Reformed churches believe. They do have some declarations about specific teachings that they exclude. And then other church action was then to expel the Arminians who were bringing this to the church to expel them out of the, the, the Dutch church. Right. So there's this movement in church history where the focus on the creedal statements is on the teaching itself. And then later on to apply that precedent to specific situations. That is more or less what we are doing now when we talk about EFS being an Arian heresy is we are saying this theology is substantially the same in in the pertinent ways, right? Nobody is saying ERS is identical to Arianism. That that's just not what we're saying. What we are saying is that there are specific points of the doctrine that are substantially the same in the same area, right? Arius taught all sorts of weird stuff. He he was a works righteousness guy. There's works righteousness and Arian or and Christological area go hand in hand, and we understand why that is because the way that Christ uh, had to save us required him to be God and man. Well, if you get that wrong, it's it's probably because you're trying to make Christ into a different savior because of your your doctrine of theology, your soteriology. So Arius also taught that Christ was a creature who leads us to God, and we follow in His path by means of our own work. Right. So when we say that uh, ERS is Arian, we are not absolutely not saying that Owen Strahan also is a legalist who thinks that we work our way to heaven. 
What we're saying is that in the applicable areas, the theology is substantively the same or similar enough that the, the label makes sense. We've detailed exactly why we think that is. We don't need to get into that. But we are taking that precedent set at Nicaea, or even in the very first one, we're taking that precedent that was set and we're comparing the teaching. Now, if there were church courts, now I don't know how this would happen with with Owen being a part of a Baptist congregation that's a, a independent Baptist congregation. I don't know how that would even happen that maybe his church, I guess, could hold a heresy trial and the other elders in his congregation could vote that he was a heretic, I guess, or other churches could could I lay a charge of that or make a resolution or a statement? I mean, I guess there are ways that it could happen, but that is something that the church has to do. And, and we've been clear on this. The church makes pronouncements of who is heretical. They also make the pronouncements of what is heresy, but it is fair for us as, as Christians studying the history of doctrine, looking at the scriptures, it's fair for us to say this teaching is substantially the same as that teaching. This teaching has these, these entailments that leads to the same place that this one does. Namely, in this case, uh, Owen's teaching on ERAS necessarily posits a plurality of wills in the Godhead that results in, a mul- in multiple natures in the Godhead. One nature that has the will of the Father, one nature that has the will of the Son, and the person bearing the nature that has the will of the Son is subordinate to the person bearing the nature of the one who has, has the, um, the will of the Father, right? Those things, those track right along with Arianism. I don't have the quote right in front of me, but Bavink, Bavink has this really fire section, I think it's in the Dogmatics, where he defines Arianism, and it really doesn't have to do with the the. Christ is a creature part of it. Arianism really is more about a fundamental division between the nature of the father and the nature of the son and that nature of the son being somehow inferior. That's Arianism. The fact that it's a creature, I actually think it's probably more accurate to say originism. It's a little bit further back in history. It's, it's a little bit more broad, but that the fact that Christ is not a creature, although it's arguable that he might be a contingent being, which puts him in the world of creature. And we've demonstrated with Bruce Ware's theology that if you have the father being unilateral and supreme overall, and then you have everything else in all of reality, worshiping the father, glorifying the God, the father and being independent of the father, including the son and the spirit in his theology, then you have a functional division of creature creator, but Christ and the spirit are on the wrong side of that. So I, I think there are some implications that sort of veer into Arianism proper. That's not precisely what we're saying though. When we talk about particularly with Owen, this, this Arian charge that he's so jazzed up about or so fired up about what we're saying is his theology that he's articulating ends in the same place and shares many of the same assumptions and the same conclusions that Arius and others following him promulgated in the church. And and I know he disputes that. I get it. I know he says he's not an Arian. That's fine. People say all sorts of things that they're not. And, and we have to assess their actual teaching, not just their defensive, I'm not that kind of a statement. Arius also said he's not a heretic, right? Nestorius also said, no, I, I think that Christ is one person, but kind of with his fingers crossed behind his back. So we have to assess the actual teaching, not just sort of the identity statement that a person makes. Now, as far as 
as far as a person that now we've identified as holding a theology that has entailments that are substantively the same as Arius or whatever other heresy we are comparing to, we are not therefore then saying that person is a heretic, because again, that's a ecclesiastical statement that the church makes after a duly called and, and properly held church court. That's not something I say in my private uh, private person as a podcast host or as an average everyday Christian. But even if I were to say, and I think sloppily, but were to say that I think Owen Strahan's a heretic, I do not think that. But if I were to say that, it does not necessarily follow that that person is in hell or is hell bound for two reasons. One, we don't know what's going to happen between now and when Owen Strahan dies. He could recant. He he could change his perspective. He could just sort of let it go and, and just not preach on it and privately change his perspective. He may not actually believe these things in his heart. We, we don't know any of that. So it's not our place to say what the eternal destiny of a person is. The church may make that statement within her discretion, but that's not my place to say that. The other thing is that oftentimes the person who holds these kinds of views, um, they don't hold them consistently. And we talked about this last week. Is that Owen explicitly says he affirms the Nicene Creed. I believe that I, I've heard him say or defend the idea that he does not hold that there are multiple wills in the Godhead. He says he believes that the there's one will or there's one divine nature. It's single. It's simple. It's shared fully among the three persons. The father is not more than the son in terms of nature or essence. He says all those things. And I think he believes those things. So the question has to be then, does the things that he explicitly states, uh, are they within the realm of Christian orthodoxy? And in Owen's case, they are. And so these other sort of like entailments that he holds, those are things that I actually think if he teased out his primary commitments, he wouldn't hold them anymore. And, and this is where I think we have to be careful because Owen's, Owen's statement here, right? If um, he says... Uh, he basically says there's no such thing as a heretic who isn't hellbound. Well, if if what we're saying is no one who holds any entailments in their theology um, that are heretical is possibly saved, there are a whole host of people that I think Owen would rightfully say they have heretical entailments in their theology, but I also do not think he would draw that conclusion that they're therefore not saved. So here's a couple examples. Right? How many of us have ever heard someone say or have said ourselves that the Trinity is like water? It's like H2O. You know, sometimes it's ice, sometimes it's liquid, sometimes it's gas. Well, that's that's heresy. So if we believe that, if we think that the Trinity is actually like that, then according to Owen's standard, we are hellbound because we are affirming modalism. Right? How many of us ever said or heard the Trinity is like an egg? There's the yolk, there's the whites, there's the shell. Well, that's heretical. So if Owen's standard is correct, all of those people, hellbound. Let's get a little bit broader than that. Well, I think that Owen and I would both agree that Arminianism, by way of entailment, denies uh, the doctrine of justification sola fide. Right? We would affirm that they inject into their system this sort of smuggled-in-works righteousness in that their faith becomes the instrumental means of their salvation, but also the grounding of their salvation, and that they themselves are the ones that may create faith in their own hearts. 
they're the ones that are responsible for it. Well, that's heretical because it denies the doctrine of justification sola fide. I don't think that Owen would therefore exclude all Arminians from salvation. I just don't think that that's the case. I guess I've never heard him say that. I've never heard him say otherwise, but I don't think that's the case. So even Owen, unless I'm being more charitable than I can even imagine, I cannot imagine that Owen would exclude from the kingdom of heaven anyone who thinks there is some sort of affinity between the Trinity and H2O changing between states of matter or between the Trinity and the different parts of an egg or a three-leaf clover or or between the Trinity and James, John, and Peter in a boat, right? All of these Trinitarian analogies that we rightfully say collapse into heresy, I don't think anyone... Um, Anyone reasonable, Owen included, would think that therefore because those entail a form of heresy, those people are hellbound. What I'm saying is that eternal relational functional subordination, whatever ERAS acronym, I'm saying it falls in that same category. Someone who, who in good faith, who's trying to love the Lord and trying to read the Bible and trying to explain this complex doctrine, in good faith is using an analogy that doesn't work. And it leads to an entailment of heresy. And so Owen Strahan, Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, they're all in the same boat of people who hold to a theology that is actually has these heretical entailments, even though if they understood those heretical entailments, they would reject those entailments. So, so when Owen makes this jump, I think he's actually being less careful and critical about the entailments of what he's saying than he realizes. He doesn't think through this absolute standard when it comes to what he might consider lesser doctrines that entail heresy or lesser lesser violations of this principle. But in reality, his standard cannot be applied consistently unless he wants to exclude every person who's ever said the Trinity is like ice, the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover, right? So I think this is just another demonstration of this inability or this unwillingness to follow argumentation to its logical conclusion that we see in these guys. It's happening when they're making statements about the father being the father because he sends the son. Well, that that is an entailment in process theology, right? That's an entailment he never gets to. He never fully understands. I don't think he actually understands the reasoning and the rationale behind why we're saying that's really bad mojo, dude. I just don't think he gets that. I think if he did understand that, and I know like sometimes there's this, there's this, um, really arrogant, smug thing that people do where it's like, if you just, if you just understood things the way I do, then you would just, you would agree with me. I don't, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is I think that Owen holds the faith once delivered to the saints, but because he is not either is not willing, able, or just has not yet done it, teased out the implications in terms of how this relates to his primary commitments. I think that he has not quite reached that conclusion. He may never get there, but that's, that's what everyone on the ERAS anti-ERAS side is saying. None of us are saying Owen Strahan is a hellbound heretic. I don't know anyone that would say that. I, I've talked to a lot of people all across the spectrum of people in academic circles and ecclesiastical circles, random people that have messaged me after hearing an episode. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of people. I do not know a single person that would say Wayne Grudem is destined for hell because of his view of the Trinity. They're just not out there. So when he when he wants to say this, he just is not representing reality. And I think that's a that's a big important distinction that people need to make when they start to wade into these waters.
So maybe you might want to weigh into a little bit about Dr. Strahan's final, or maybe it was the first comment about the overheated nature of this. Why do you think he says that? And if it is a matter of just trying to process things rightly and maybe have good, fruitful discussion, why, in using his language, has it become overheated? Yeah. I mean, I I don't know for sure. I mean, I, I don't. I don't have access to his internal thought life on this. I think that what he's getting at is he sees these debates primarily as intramural debates between Christians. He, he sees eternal functional subordination, eternal relations of authority and submission. He sees them within this broad stream of Christian orthodoxy that are all faithfully articulating the Trinity and just have these little nuanced things about it. And so from that perspective, I I totally understand why he would say this is overheated. If someone came to me and said, um, you know, the fact that you think that repentance uh, follows justification instead of precedes justification, uh, you must be a heretic. I would say, whoa, hold on a second here. Like this is a debate that's within the, within the, realm of reformed Christianity. It's not even a, it's not even a creedal issue. This is a, a minute detail in the ordo salutis between reformed Christians. So maybe back off on the H bomb there. What I don't think he understands, first of all, this got heated, uh, because of the ERAS people. When you introduce errant doctrine into the church, you are the one creating division right? The the people on our side of the conversation have been trying to have private and public conversations in real time with all of these guys for over, over six years now. I mean, I, I only really became aware of in 2016, but this goes back to an, EF, an ETS address that Bruce Ware did in 2006, right? So we've been trying to have this conversation publicly in, in ways that the views can be pressed and cross-examined on each other for years now, like a decade now, more than a decade now. And so this is becoming overheated because now it's no longer discussion in the academy. It's made its way into the pews. It never fails that when I post one of these quotes where it looks, it's clear as day that someone holds that there's two wills in the Trinity or three wills in the Trinity. It never fails now that somebody goes, I don't understand what the problem with that is. Or there was a quote that I found from Bruce Ware where he flat out says that the father has an ontological primacy over and against the son. Right. That I mean, that like, why would anyone, why would anyone think that's Arianism? I mean, it's it's clear. It's a clear statement that Arius would affirm. It's a clear statement that the Father is ontologically greater than the Son, ontologically prime over the Son. Well, we've been trying to get these things clarified and asking for clarification and asking for dialogue and asking for debate. But now, when I post a statement like the Father is ontologically primary or supreme over the Son or has an ontological primacy over the Son. I don't remember the exact phrasing. When I post that, all of a sudden people go, I don't understand what's wrong with that. Well, the reason that we're getting heated up is because this is now something that is hurting this church. It's hurting the average everyday Christian who doesn't understand these things and intrinsically trusts that people like Owen Strahan and Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem, because they teach at evangelical seminaries, because they publish with evangelical publishers, they must be orthodox. So, of course, what they're saying must be fine. I was listening to um, a show that I just... 
um, just got made aware of called the Pactum and they're doing a series in John Owen. And the, the one of the hosts was talking about how he used to teach eternal functional subordination because he just didn't realize that it wasn't, it wasn't what the church has always held. I, I was, I was sort of thought it was a silly debate. I was frustrated that the doctrine of the Trinity was being used as sort of a prop in this complementarian argument. But at the end of the day, for a long time, I said like, but yeah, I mean like the father and the son can have the same nature and and the son still be obedient to him. Like I even was doing that until I realized how far off it was. And so it's, it's gotten overheated because they've introduced division in the church by introducing a false and errant doctrine that is not the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And they have promulgated it and pushed it through their various means of influence into the hands of the laity. And now the laity are holding doctrines of, of the Trinity that are heretical. When a, when a Christian cannot recognize that the statement that the father has an ontological priority over the son, that that's not what the Bible says. And that's not what the Nicene Creed says. When that's happened, it's time to draw swords. It's time to throw some elbows. And that's what we're trying to do now is we're trying, we're trying to get this done. We're trying to get something done and force a discussion that's not happening. So it's not overheated. It's definitely heated. But at the end of the day, Owen thinks we're being unfair to him by calling his view heretical. And he thinks because of his very minimalistic understanding of what that phrase means, he thinks that we're condemning him to hell, that we're condemning Bruce Ware, who's also his father-in-law, to hell, that we're condemning Wayne Grudem to hell. So I can understand why he thinks that it's overheated, but in reality, we should have heated this debate up a long time ago. When the ESV study Bible was something everybody was all, all the rage about, we should have said, but wait a second, what about this passage here? What about what you say on, on 1 Corinthians 11? That doesn't seem right. That's not what the Trinity actually is. So we have to, we have to sort of frame this in that context. This is not just a casual intramural debate between two, two positions within the Christian church. This is a debate. Jude, the book of Jude says that we should save some by, uh, as though snatching them out of the fire. Right. And it's talking about false teachers. It's talking about people who are teaching false doctrine in the church. Well, we're there. Like, we're there. I'm not saying, I've never said, and I never will say that Owen Strahan or any of these other guys is condemned to hell. But when someone holds a view of the Trinity that is this wrong and this far off from the historic Orthodox understanding of the, the faith, it is a reason for us to be very concerned and for us to snatch them as though snatching them out of the fire. Well, the fire's already here and that's what we're snatching them out of. So this idea of it being overheated, yeah, it's hot. It's heated up. Like we're, we're ready to rumble on this because it's important. It's important and it's because we care about the eternal salvation of people like Owen Strahan that we want to, um, we want to argue against their position. We want to convince them of what the Bible teaches on these matters. So I believe uh, this is your, I don't know, your second act, third act. You had some quotes from J.I. Packer that you wanted to go through. Yeah. So the specific quote that J.I. Packer, that um, Owen is referencing, it comes from Knowing God. And I want to pull it up. It's, It's rather lengthy, but I want to read not just the part that he quoted in one of his articles, but also the part uh, immediately after that. So, uh, the quote comes from Knowing God. It's on um, 
he has it listed as page 54 through 55. I have the Kindle version, and for some reason, Kindle stopped giving me page numbers. Oh, there it is. Uh, it's on page 61 of my edition. And he, um, I just want to find it here. Uh, let's see. This is phenomenal podcasting, everyone. Um, I'll just edit this out. So it's on page 62 of the uh, Kindle edition. He says, and and it's important for us to note this, right? This is something that you, when you see the, this, the, the method that they're using is called floralagia. And it was really common in the, the Middle Ages. And if you think about it, books were expensive. They were hard to reproduce. And so the way that the church taught the faith was in these things called floralagia. So it was basically, if you wanted to teach the doctrine of justification, you would collect all of the sayings of the fathers on a, a given subject, on justification, the Trinity, whatever. Well, that was useful for saving paper and for being able to pass these things around. But unfortunately, the context of these quotes became lost to the students. And actually, this was one of the reasons why the Reformation happened, because when we went back to the sources, we realized how badly these floralagia were distorting the reality of what was being taught. And so when you look at this passage here on um, Owen's website, he um, he quotes the section. As far as I can tell, he quotes um, pretty much the entirety of the section, which is a problem we've seen in other places, but he just gives you a page number. Well, what he doesn't tell you is that this isn't a page number in um, Packer's chapter on the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a page number in Packer's chapter on the doctrine of the incarnation, which tells you something immediately about what Packer is getting at and what he's emphasizing. And so he says, how are we to account for this restraint? This is Packer. This restraint being the emptying of his own prerogative to display and manifest his divine glory, the, the incarnation. How are we to account for this restraint? Surely in terms of the truth of which John's gospel in particular makes so much the entire submission of the Son to the Father's will. Part of the revealed mystery of the Godhead is that the three persons stand in a fixed relationship to each other. The Son appears in the Gospels not as an independent divine person, but as a dependent one, who thinks and acts only and wholly as the Father directs. The Son can do nothing by himself. By myself I can do nothing. John 5, 19 and 30. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38. I do nothing on my own. I always do what pleases me. John 8, 28 through 29. And here's the part that all of the EFS advocates just, they just lose their minds over. It is the nature of the second person of the Trinity to acknowledge the authority and submit to the good pleasure of the first. That is why he declares himself to be the son and the first person to be his father. Though co-equal with the father in eternity, power and glory, it is natural to him to play the son's part and to find all his joy in doing the father's will. Just as it is natural to the first person of the Trinity to plan and initiate the works of the Godhead and natural to the third person to proceed from the father and the son to do their joint bidding. Thus, the obedience of the God-man to the Father while he was on earth was not a new relationship occasioned by the Incarnation, but a continuation in time of the eternal relationship between the Son and the Father in heaven. As in heaven, so on earth, the Son was utterly dependent on the Father's will. And that's generally where they end the quote, somewhere in that area. Now, there's actually a lot to be commended in this, and I keep on saying this, but next week we're going to talk about the divine missions and how the divine processions uh, influence and determine which persons would engage in which, which 
temporal missions. That's what Packer's getting at. He's trying to root the fact that the son is obedient to the father in the fact that he is the son in eternity past. That statement in itself is actually not something I would disagree with. The reason the son, the second person of the Trinity was incarnate and became the obedient mediator, the obedient second Adam, is because he was the son of the father. The Holy Spirit could not have come and been the incarnate son. He, the father could not have come and been the incarnate son. That that's not how it works. Now, I'm not going to try to paint Packer as though he's not advocating something very similar to EFS. He does. He clearly does. He clearly has this idea that there's this eternal obedience and that this relation in the Trinity is natural. So Owen is right that Packer is advocating something that is compatible with his view. Here's where Owen goes wrong. He doesn't continue the quote. The next statement that he makes is, but if this is so... All is explained. The God-man did not know independently any more than he acted independently. Any more, uh, just as he did not do all things he could have, because certain things were not his father's will. So he did not consciously know all that he might have known, but only what the father willed him to know. His knowing, like the rest of his activity, was bounded by his father's will, and therefore the reason why he was ignorant of, for instance, the date of his return was not that he had given up the power to know all things at the incarnation, but that the father had, but that the father had not willed that he should have this particular piece of knowledge while on earth prior to his passion. So, do you see what there what what's happening? Packer's argument is not. The son is obedient on earth. Therefore, everything that is true of the son in the incarnation is true of the son in, in eternity past. Therefore, the son is eternally obedient. Packer is going from, he's reasoning from the imminent trinity to the economic trinity and the implications on the incarnation for that. So if Owen wants to garner this, for his own camp. If he wants to say that this is manifestly the exact same thing he's saying, then he also has to say that the son in eternity past is uh, ignorant of something. Because that's what Packer's saying. Packer is saying that the son as the son was obedient, the son as the God-man was, was obedient and dependent to the father's will, even insofar as his knowledge itself was constrained to determine by what the father had decreed. So, so Packer, yes, Packer has a statement here. I think Packer holds a theology that is compatible to eternal functional subordination. Great. I'm fine with that. Do I think Packer is in hell? No. Do I think that Packer is saying anything even remotely similar to what Owen is saying or, or doing the same theological maneuver that Owen is doing? Absolutely not. Now, Packer wrote this years and years before the EFS controversy was a thing. So to say that he is holding eternal functional subordination or eternal relations of authority and submission is just anachronistic. He, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a doctrine. It wasn't a, even, it didn't have a name. So we have to be careful. And this just demonstrates, this is what happens again and again and again and again with these guys. Wayne Grudem has this long list of um, quotes from evangelical theologians that he pulls and he says they teach EFS. He puts Michael Horton in that category. Michael Horton has explicitly stated EFS is false. He said there is no eternal functional subordination of the son. Yet Packer or uh, Grudem puts in this list of quotes Michael Horton because Michael Horton said one thing that sort of fits into Grudem's overall program. And so he he rips it out of context, he pulls it in 
and says he teaches the same thing. And that's that's one of the main features or main characteristics of these guys when they're dealing with any sort of historical source. And I think this is speculation. I think the reason for it is they don't place any value in the historical source, right? For Owen, it's all about Owen and himself and his Bible. And, and he's interpreting the Bible apart from the historical tradition. The historical tradition doesn't constrain him. So he just doesn't care. He doesn't really care what the historical church has said, but he has to bring in these quotes to defend himself against this charge that this is a novel theology that hasn't been held in the church. And here's the problem. This kind of florilegia gets passed around and passed around and passed around, and it proves that the guys, these guys are not doing their own homework. And here's an example of it. Um, if you go back, I don't remember which episode it was, but I did a denial when Wayne Grudem's second edition came out. And my main denial on that was that he took a, a quote uh, from... Uh, Louis Burkhoff, or this was part of it. He took a quote from Louis Burkhoff and he, he put an ellipsis in it, which is that little dot, dot, dot. That means there's more to the text here than what I'm quoting. And you usually use that when you're going to pull out stuff that doesn't actually matter. You know, if someone says a statement and then reiterates that statement, you might put a dot, dot, dot in there to save some characters because it's, he's just repeating himself. Well, in this use in there in Grudem, he actually skipped over a, a uh, section break. So, so the, the information at the beginning of this quote was in relation. It was the conclusion of one section. And the information at the end of the quote was the beginning of a new section that of course is related, but is talking about something different. And the difference there disproves that Burkov would support his view. Here's where it comes into Owen Strahan on Owen's article. Owen wrote an article called, uh, the danger of equating eternal authority. Um, that's just the URL of it. It's called The Danger of Equating Eternal Authority and Submission with the Arian Heresy. And he quotes Louis Burkhoff. And wouldn't you know it, it is exactly the same quote as Wayne Grudem uses. It's, a, it's got the same ellipsis in the same exact spot. Huh. That's interesting. Now, do you think it's reasonable to think that Owen Strahan... I'm not actually asking you, Jesse, but you're welcome to answer the question if you want. Do you think it's reasonable, dear listener, <laughs> that Owen Strahan just managed to select to put the ellipsis in the same spot that is academically suspect, right? You do not put an ellipsis that that crosses over a section break and changes the meaning of the text. Do you think that Owen just made the same sloppy academic mistake that Dr. Grudem did? Or do you think that that Owen Strahan didn't do his research and instead just lifted this quote without citation, by the way, that's plagiarism, Mr. Strahan. Do you think that he just lifted this quote out of, out of Dr. Grudem's book? I think that's what happened. And so these guys are using these quotes. They're kind of passing these quotes around absent their context, right? There are some others here um, that are just, just as bad. I'm not going to pull all of them up, but uh, there's one that he uses. Um, uh, he quotes historian Philip Schaff, and his quote here says, The Nicene Fathers still teach, like their predecessors, a certain subordinationism, which seems to conflict with the doctrine of consubstantiality. But we must distinguish between a subordination of essence and a subordinationism of hypostasis, of order of dignity. The former was denied, the latter was affirmed. The essence of the Godhead being but one and being absolutely perfect can admit no degree of, uh, can admit of no degree. Father, Son, and Spirit have the same divine essence, yet not in a coordinate way, but in an order of subordination. Well, that certainly sounds like what Schaff is saying. 
is that the the Nicene fathers taught ERAS that they recognized this order of uh, order of rank or order of uh, dignity in the Godhead, even though they denied that that order of dignity constituted a uh, separation or an order in essence. Well, if you go to Dr. Schaff's work and you finish out that section that Owen pulls this out of, he says, um, let's see, the logical consistency of the doctrine of the consubstantiality of the son upon which the Nicene fathers laid chief stress must over, uh, must in time overcome this decaying remnant of anti-Nicene subordinationism. So what Dr. Schaff is actually saying is, yes, the patristic fathers and the Nicene framers taught this form of subordinationism, but that was something that was overcome in the church, that this was a remnant of anti-Nicene prior to Nicaea theology that the, the Nicene fathers hadn't quite overcome yet. Now, I don't think that Owen wants to say that about his own theology, that this is a remnant, a decaying remnant of anti-Nicene theology. Not anti-Nicene theology, anti-Nicene theology. I don't think he wants to say that. I don't think he even knows that Chef said that. I really don't think he continued reading to the rest of the line. If he even got this out of Schaff himself instead of out of someone else's florilegia that pulled it. He does the same thing with, uh, I'm not going to go into the specifics, but he does the same thing with um, Augustine. He quotes Augustine out of, uh, out of his answers to Maximinius, who was an Arian. And Augustine basically is responding to objections that uh, Maximinius was lodging. But he just quotes Augustine as though Augustine was positively advocating this, and it wasn't coming in the context of refuting an Arian, right? There's one spot where he quotes someone, and the literally the next sentence is the person saying that the, the theology that Owen presents, he's not saying this explicitly, but the doctrine presented in 1 Corinthians 11 is 100% different than what Owen interprets it as. He quotes that person, but then he doesn't quote the part where it disvalidates his uh, or invalidates his interpretation of first Corinthians, uh, 11. So there's this selective use of sources that's happening. And this is what needs to be, this is what needs to be understood. These guys don't care about historical theology. They'll say they do, but they demonstrate that they don't. This is sloppy freshman level stuff that would get you a D and probably a pretty firm talking to from the provost. If I wrote a paper or I published a book and I lifted a modified version of a quote of Louis Burkhoff out of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and did not properly cite it, I, I that book would get pulled from the market, rightfully so. Because that is not just the same thing as quoting the same quote. It's quoting Grudem's modification of that quote without citing him. If I committed some of these errors, right, We I went over it. Grudem pulled a quote out of Hodge, I think, that uh, Strahan might actually use the same quote or, or a similar quote. But if I pulled a quote out of Hodge and eliminated like 87% of the words and hid those in an ellipsis, both Owen Strahan and Wayne Grudem would rightfully fail me on that paper. Both of them would do it. I have no doubt about it. Yet when they're trying to defend their view that is functionally Aryan, they're perfectly comfortable doing it. They're perfectly comfortable just abusing the historical sources. So much so that now people think that Michael Horton teaches eternal functional subordination. And they think that uh, Gerhardus Voss taught eternal functional subordination. It's just ridiculous to say that. When you read it in context, it just doesn't work. 
And the last thing I want to say before we start to wrap this up is anytime you try to identify in one of these EFS guys, you try to point out that their theology entails a plurality of wills. They just cry wolf. They cry foul on you that, that no, no, I deny that. I don't, I don't believe that. But when you, like I said last week, I demonstrated pretty clearly last week that one of the, one of the explicit statements in one of Owen's podcasts is entails a plurality of wills. But here's this on his article that I've been quoting he quotes he quotes Michael Ovi, who was involved in the EF, EFS debate in 2016, but died shortly after. And he says this: uh, This is quoting Ovi on Strahan's article. He says, "I have concluded against Liam Gallagher that one, there is a historical precedent for returning the eternal subordination of the Son. Two, the texts of Scripture require us to recognize at the level of the persons distinguishable wills of the Father and Son." So which is it? Which is it, Dr. Strahan? Is it that there are there's only one will in the Trinity? Or is it that at the level of persons there are distinguishable wills in the Father and Son? Because you can't have both. You can't you can't do both. And so this this idea that the the EFS advocates don't hold a plurality of wills in the Godhead, they don't hold a differentiation of essence in the Godhead, they don't hold sort of this inappropriate ranking and ordering of indignity in the Godhead that they don't abuse historical sources. These ideas have all been disproven time and time and time again. And here's where it boils down. And I'm not one, I don't want to do like the James White thing where like you try to, you try to goad someone into having a debate with you. If, if Owen doesn't want to come on the show, Owen doesn't have to come on the show. If Wayne Grudem never returns my email or Bruce Ware never returns my email, neither one of them have ever returned my email. That, that's fine. Whatever. But the reason that this, this persists is if any one of these guys brought this nonsense to a formal debate with a moderately competent person in, in with debating skills and historical knowledge and systematic theology no, knowledge, they would they would embarrass themselves, just straight out embarrass themselves. Um, that's why they don't do it. I, I I don't have any other explanation for it. I can't figure out why these guys absolutely refuse to have any sort of public, real-time, synchronous dialogue on this because they absolutely will not allow their view to submit to any cross-examination. And the only thing that I can think of is that they recognize that their view cannot stand up to cross-examination. They recognize that any one of us, look, I'm, I'm a podcaster. I've got a seminary degree, but I don't have a doctorate. I don't, I don't spend, I don't spend 40 hours a week working on this stuff. I wish I could, but I don't. I maybe get maybe two hours of theology study a week in addition to whatever I can scrape together to prepare for the podcast, right? If I can pull this stuff out, I'm not that special. If I can pull this stuff out and this readily dismantle these arguments, then imagine what someone like a Scott Swain or a uh, Michael Allen or Liam Gallagher or Carl Truman could do. I mean, it would be it would be a theological bloodbath. And so these guys won't submit their views to that kind of scrutiny because they don't want to deal with it. And I get it. It's hard to change your view. 
it's hard to acknowledge that a deeply held conviction you had for many years was wrong. It's hard to do that, especially when you've made money off of that, when you have books in circulation on that, when your brand is tied into that. It's very hard to do. But the right thing to do in a situation like this, if he wants to turn the temperature down, if he wants this to be less overheated, the right thing to do is to submit the position to discourse and dialogue and debate which is what he won't do. So what we have to do is we keep on yelling. We keep on shouting from the rooftops. This stuff is dangerous. It's bad news. These guys love the Lord, but they are way, way off the rails. We keep on shouting that because the people who need to hear it don't have access to it unless we do. So I I don't want to turn this show into the Tony monologue hour. So we're not, we're not going to do any more of these for a while. It's not, we're going to go back to our normal episodes. We're not going to let a debate or a dispute with Owen Strahan dominate the rest of the show for the next seven episodes. This is, at least for now, unless there's new developments, this is the last Tony monologuing about Owen Strahan's view episode for a while. Next week, we're going back to a straightforward, regular Reformed Brotherhood episode on the Divine Missions. We're going to get back into our fundamental series. But I thought, Jesse and I thought it was important because these topics are so prevalent because there are so many people who are unknowingly walking into heresy because of the way these guys do their work and because of the way these guys publish, because of the way this stuff happens. Um, They have everybody fooled. They have everybody fooled. When the EFS, um, the EFS controversy first broke in 2016, when it really heated up, Dr. Albert Moeller, who I think everyone listening to the show would would respect and would say is a sharp guy, knows his theology, he wrote an article that basically was taking Owen's perspective, that calling this heresy was ridiculous. And in that article, he said something along the lines of, yes, affirming a plurality of wills in the Trinity would be heresy. Well, (laughs) I mean, we've got explicit quotes of plurality of wills. We have Bruce Ware saying that the father and the son have distinguishable wills in a 2019 book. So even someone who's sharp like Al Mohler looks at this and is fooled by it. And he's fooled by the explicit statements and doesn't bother to research the entailments. So I don't want to get too more, too much more labor down on this. I, I cannot see a Reformed Brotherhood that doesn't come back to EFS at some point in the future. But for now, I, we, just have to, we just have to keep on fighting the good fight on this. Sounds good. I mean, you, it's your podcast. You get the last word. Is there something else you want to say to kind of wrap that up or like to set things in a place that's a more firm mold? No, I mean, I... I I don't hate Owen Strahan. I don't, I don't want to beat up Owen Strahan. I kind of want to beat him up theologically a little bit, but I, I, I would love for him to reconsider his decision not to come on the show. I mean, I know he's a busy guy and that's, that's what he said. The reason was he wasn't coming on the show and I'm going to take him at his word for that. But things that are important, you make time for if, if this was an important thing, for him to clarify his view and to turn the temperature down on this debate by having an open and direct dialogue. And if it was important enough to him, he would make time for it. So I I hope he reconsiders that. If there are other EFS uh, advocates out there that 
somehow get a hold of this and you would like to come on the show and have that conversation, we would more than welcome you. We'll make time for you and whatever we're doing, we'll figure out how to make it work. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think this EFS controversy is going to be a relatively small blip on the, the church history radar. Like I think there, this is a footnote in, in some chapter on reformed evangelicals, you know, that gets written in a hundred years. I I don't think there's going to be large, large tracks of, of historical work done on it. Mostly because I think it's such a niche issue within the reformed world. It just doesn't hit, it just doesn't have that magnitude, but also because I think, I think most of this stuff's going to go away because I think eventually people are going to see that this stuff is just bad. And eventually it's going to be proven to publishers like Crossway. I'm going to name names, Crossway, Zondervan. They all have an obligation as, as publishers of religious books, of Christian books. They have an obligation to not publish heresy, right? And I know that they're trying to allow for a variety of views, but it's been handily demonstrated that this stuff is not the historic Christian faith. So I think eventually this is going to, this is going to kind of burn over and, and we'll move on. But that doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean people aren't being led astray now. So, like I said, I can't imagine a future where we don't have we don't have EFS episodes. I mean, we're we're, we're going to have to talk about some of this stuff again next week when we we plug it into how we talk about the missions. But at the end of the day, I don't know that I want to go out for a beer with Owen Strahan at this point. I, I think I don't think I would enjoy that. I don't think he would enjoy that. I don't think we're ever going to be best friends, but he is a Christian brother and I love him and I'm concerned about him. I'm concerned about his theology. I'm concerned as a teacher in God's church, not only me as a teacher in God's church, as an elder in a church, I'm concerned that my, my, the people I'm responsible for are getting a hold of this stuff, but I'm concerned for him as he is an elder and a teacher in God's church, or I don't know if he's an elder, but a teacher in God's church, he is teaching errant things. And the scripture makes it very clear that those who teach have a higher standard and that there are severe consequences for those who lead people astray in their office of teaching. So pray for Owen, pray for the EFS guys, pray that God opens their eyes. Wouldn't it just be an amazing, amazing blessing if like, like, on New Year's Day this year, they all woke up and realized they were wrong. And there was like some, instead of getting up and tweeting something about the new year and about resolutions or whatever, they all got up and, and they tweeted or emailed or whatever that they are recanting of their ESF, ESF views. Like that would just be amazing. So pray for that. Pray for the church. It's a tough topic and it's tough to not get heated up about it. It's tough not to, um, it's tough not to throw some elbows because of how important this is. And you know what? I'm not going to lie. I took a few hits on Twitter when Owen called me out. Uh, there are a lot of people who are saying some nasty things about me. That's part of doing business. That's part of being a public Christian, whether you're a public Christian who's publishing books and making money off of it, or whether you host a rinky dink podcast that like 700 people listen to, you put yourself out there and you have to be willing to allow your views to be submitted to criticism and to cross-examination. I right. think that's it. Uh, I'm, out of, I'm out of energy. I'm out of gas, Jesse. All right. Well, let's leave it there until next time. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.